how to interpret the Bible. Um, now, in one sense, I could spend um, weeks and weeks and weeks talking about how to interpret the Bible, uh, and there are whole classes and whole books written on this, but I can't do that. But what I want to do is give an overview of some general principles just to say these are some guidelines that I think will help. It looks like it'll take this week and next week, and we'll try to get some more specifics next week. I want to start out and say that uh, the three most important rules for interpreting the Bible are, the, are these. Uh, number one, uh, read it. Uh, number two, uh, read it. And number three, read it. And what I mean by that is, I think the most important thing in interpreting the Bible is, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, with Bob, and then we switched over to Rick, and I don't know what Rick did. Did we ever kind of have an opening prayer here? I don't think we did. Why don't we just stop and pray here? Lord, thank you for this class. Thank you for these friends. Thank you for their... Uh, care for Margaret and me and uh, for the work of your kingdom and thank you for your word and now Lord um, we we believe that you have given your word to us so that it could be understood so that it wouldn't remain a mystery for our whole lives and we thank you as we look back in our lives that even from childhood we could understand something of your word, and as we've grown to adulthood, that we can understand more. And we believe that throughout our lives, there is still more and still more uh, to be discovered from your word. So as we think today about principles for interpreting it, we ask for your help, your direction, your guidance, and for your presence with us. Amen. Okay, when I say read it, read it, read it, what I mean is read through the whole Bible regularly. How's the light on this? Can you see this all right now? It's good. Read through the whole Bible regularly to get understanding of the scope of the whole. And then for deeper study, read and reread any one passage several times for more understanding. And I'm saying this, read it, read it, read it, in contrast to just reading what other people have said about it. I remember uh, a while ago, our family was on vacation. We went to a church, just we've never been there before, just to visit visitors. And the pastor preached a sermon, and we came out, and one of my sons said, you know, he's preaching from his books, not from his heart. And I, I think that was true. He had just probably read a bunch of commentaries and written down some notes, and he'd never really spent time with the text. And I, I, I find that the most effective sermons are ones when... I have spent time with the text, and the text, and God has touched my heart through the text. And so I encourage students, just don't go to all the commentaries and read six, eight, ten different commentaries, what other people have said about the text. Do your own work first. Read it, and reread it, and reread it, and ask God for help in understanding it. And uh, then read it again, and take some notes, and read it again. Eventually, yes, go ahead and go and read some commentaries if you want. That'll prevent you from making some kind of dumb mistakes. And it can help if you just get stuck and you just say, I just, I cannot figure that out. I maybe need some help. Maybe somebody else has written something on this. But don't do that right away. Wait. 
Read the Bible itself first. And then the people who know the Bible best and are really good at interpreting the Bible, I found often, are people who have read through the Bible again and again and again and again, reading through the whole Bible year after year in their lives. And so they're getting a sense of the scope of the whole. What happens is that the, the whole tends to correct our misunderstanding of any of the parts or the whole tends to enrich our understanding of any of the parts. So that when we are reading the whole and we've got the scope of the whole Bible in mind, it helps us in any one point to see where it fits in the whole and how um, the whole uh, fits together. So, so you read the text in light of the whole Bible and you read the whole Bible then in light of any text. Read it, read it, read it. I really do think that's the best thing you can do. If you've never taken any course in how to interpret the Bible, never had any classes in seminary, just reading it. It's written, as we said a week or two ago on the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, it's basically written for ordinary people. Uh, the Bible was written to whole congregations, the epistles. Paul wanted the, the, um, uh, the Colossians to read aloud his letter. He wanted the Thessalonians, or, or Timothy, to read aloud these letters, letters, words of Scripture. Deuteronomy wanted people to meditate on them uh, and talk about these words with their children day and night. It's written for ordinary people just to read without any sophisticated tools. So, having said that, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I want to pause here before I say one more thing, too. When I have taught um, courses in Greek exegesis, that is usually a second-year Greek class, I get students in the first day of class, I regularly ask for a volunteer, they don't know what they're volunteering for, say it's Phil, he volunteers, and, um, and I say, look, open your, open your open your Bible at random to some verse in the New Testament and put your finger on a verse. And, they, and he does, okay. And then we read the verse. Okay, the student reads the verse a lot. Okay, now, without using the words in the verse, just tell in your own words what that verse means. And the student will kind of fumble around and kind of give a summary of what it means. And then I'll say to the class, did he do a pretty good job? Yeah, okay, he explained what it meant. Well, I say, why are you in seminary? <laughs> The point I want to make is you're going to seminary to increase your skill in something you already do quite well. As a Christian, you're going to, you'll increase your skill in something you already do quite well. But I think God's people ordinarily can basically read their Bibles, and it's, it's meant for them to understand. And so seminary gets you to be, have some expertise, some ability to answer harder questions from, and objections from other people and from atheist religion philosophy professors on the airplane and things like that. Um, but, um, uh, but I want to start there, as opposed to having seminary students think, I've got to go to seminary before I can understand anything about the Bible, and when I graduate, I probably will know less than I did when I started. Um, that can be a mentality that some people adopt, that they, they don't, uh, don't think they're going to understand anything, and then there's so many complexities to it, and so many books written about it, who can ever be sure? I don't want to go there. That isn't the way God made the Bible. All right? Okay, so read it, read it, read it. Now, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the, the, the example of the godly man. Everybody in Israel is supposed to Im have a picture of this guy, imitate him. Here's what he's doing. On his law he meditates day and night. He's reading it, he's thinking about it, he's pondering it. 
and therefore he's growing in wisdom. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. At this idea of living not on bread, we have to eat bread every day, or bread as a figure of speech for all the food we have. And so in a similar way, we should be nourishing ourselves spiritually on God's word every day. We live on it. We, we read it, read it, read it all the time. Number two, point number two, the interpretation of Scripture is not a magical or mysterious process. Scripture was written in the ordinary words of the day. Paul was writing to ordinary Christians in Corinth or in Rome. Um, uh, Moses was speaking to ordinary Israelites who'd come out of Egypt. David was a shepherd writing psalms out uh, in the fields at night. Um, these are pe ordinary people writing to ordinary people in the normal words of the day. <clears throat> so I'm always skeptical of these kind of secret codes that people have. Like, uh, if you uh, take a computer and count every 17th letter going backwards, you'll find Adolf Hitler's name mysteriously revealed in the book of Revelation. <laughs> oh, it didn't quite work out right. Well, then cancel every fifth letter. <laughs> Every third time you get every fifth letter. I mean, if you try those enough times, you can get some letters to line up together just because there are only so many letters in the world. And, uh, and you get people selling books on the basis of this Bible code and everything like that. That isn't the way God made the Bible. He had the Bible be written to be understood by ordinary people. Nobody, nobody in, the, in the first century would have counted letters backwards every 17th. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean? Um, that's, that's the kind of thing to be done. That is, that's saying this is a kind of a, a secret mystery book with a code that only Indiana Jones can figure out. And I just, it isn't the way the Bible is. It's an ordinary, it's written to ordinary people. And then the meaning of a text. What is the meaning of a text? The meaning of a text must be consistent with what the original author intended to communicate to the original hearers. And therefore, it should be able to be demonstrated by appeal to the meanings of words, sentences, and arguments from the context. And, um, well, yeah, what I mean is we should be able to talk about the, the words of Scripture and, uh, and uh, say, hey, this is what this word means, this is what this word doesn't mean, or sentences or arguments. And um, a lot of times you'll hear Daryl doing that in a sermon on Sunday morning. He'll say, well, the Greek word here is such and such, and it means this and this. He's giving you a little more vividness, a little more precision on it. He's trying to explain why it means this, and it doesn't mean that. And um, uh, that's just appealing to the sense of the words and the arguments in the context. Um, okay, so first century Christians didn't have a secret decoder to unlock hidden messages. And so I've looked at some verses, Ephesians 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Most people think that uh, Ephesians was written to many churches in this large metropolitan area, Ephesus, um, in the ancient world. The churches that had sprouted up where Paul was there for three years, preaching the word of God, all Asia heard the word of God. And then many, many churches had grown up around this large metropolitan area. And he's writing to all the churches of, uh, around Ephesus. And he's saying to all of them, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And he goes on. Or Colossians 4, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And then 1 Thessalonians, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Have it read. 
Paul's expecting that people will understand it. It's not secret. It's not mysterious. It's ordinary communication. You want to talk about that? Question about that? Okay. Carol. Carol. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. I, I, Carol is saying it's important to pray and ask the Holy Spirit's help in applying it to your life, and I totally agree with that. Yeah, very important. So I don't want to diminish that by saying this first. I just want to get away from these people who say it's a mystery code, of some kind. Okay. And I'm going to say that a little bit later, too. Okay. All right. Now, what can interpreters use to try to understand a text? And if the text is puzzling, what can they use? I think that every interpreter has only four sources of information. There aren't any secret other sources than these four. These are the only four sources of information that you have about the text. Number one, you have the words meaning of the individual words and sentences. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Number two, you have the context. That is the place, what, what role does this sentence play in this paragraph or in the larger argument of Romans or of Galatians or whatever. And then you've got the teaching of the whole Bible. Words, context, whole Bible. And then there's background. There's some information about the historical and cultural background. But I want to be careful here, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So let's look at those four sources of information. First, the words, the meaning of the individual words and sentences. Um, to discover the meaning of a word with more precision, you can do word studies to find several more examples of the same word. But if you've got the word fellowship, you don't really want the English word fellowship. You want the Greek word that's behind that. And then you want to do, so you get more of a sense of what that Greek word meant. And the question is, can you do that as a layperson? Yes, before I had any Greek or Hebrew knowledge at all, I used an old-fashioned book called The Englishman's Greek Concordance. And there's an Englishman's Hebrew Concordance, and you'd look up the word in the King James Version, and then you'd look up the verse, and then kind of have this little system where it would get you to the right, and then it would give you all the verses where that Greek word was used or that Hebrew word was used. And I remember doing that as a sophomore in college. It was just fascinating to me that I could get more of a sense of what that word was meaning and get a more, more, more accuracy and precision and vividness on it. For example, Exodus 20:13, you shall not murder. The King James Version said you, sh said you shall not kill. You shall not kill. And some people think that for prohibits swatting flies <laughs> or stepping on ants. Isn't that killing? <clears throat> or eating fish? Uh, you know, doesn't. And and so, what is you shall not murder? You shall not kill. What does that mean? Well, and then others think it prohibits capital punishment. Or others have been Christian pacifists and they've said it prohibits Christians from participating in war because war involves killing. Well, in order to decide on that, I really need to know what is the meaning of the Hebrew word underneath this verb murder? 
or kill in other versions. Murder or kill. What does it really mean? Well, I could look at a Hebrew text, but that doesn't help me too much if you don't know any Hebrew. Lo <laughs> tirzach. Uh, it's the verb ratzach, but even if I found out what it means, if the word verb is ratzach, what does ratzach mean? How do you even know if the Hebrew word is ratzach? Well, you need some tools to help you with word studies. As I said, the old-fashioned book that I used to use was called The Englishman's Hebrew Concordance. Anybody ever used that? Anybody know about that? Diane has used it, yeah. And it's, it's really helpful, uh, but that was a long time ago. Now there are computer tools that do that. And so there are some tools, and some of you may be interested in these. Um, the program I use is called Bible Works. Bible Works. And that will let you do this, even if you don't know any Greek or Hebrew. There's a, there's a way to do it. And there's a Logos Libronic system that we've used at the seminary. A lot of seminary students have used as well. And I was just talking to Ben when... Bob interrupted me. Ben Burdick, who helps me with putting together these outlines and things. Ben, I'm wondering if you could look into seeing if there are any more programs that might be user-friendly for people that just, you know, just want some help in doing word studies. Um, and so more, maybe more to come, but at least those I know are good. Or books. There's a Strong's Analytical Concordance, and that'll get you a number for the word the word murder there, it'll get you a number. And uh, then you look on that number and it gives you a definition. It gives you many more uses of it. Or um, there are some websites, and I put more information to be supplied because if I can find some more, let's do this. But one of my students named Troy Griffiths has a, a website called crosswire.org. And I looked at it the other night, and it's possible to get that material on that and do a, a word study on a Hebrew or Greek word. And bible.org lets you do it too. But again, Ben, I'm wondering if you could find out any more uh, websites, and we'll, I can probably pass that along. What you find out, what you find out, I think I need a new battery in this. Hmm. <laughs> okay. What you find out, for instance, when you get uh, this word ratzak, I don't know, it might occur 30 or 40 times in the Old Testament, I looked up every one of them. What did I find out? Never applied to killing ants or flies or animals. Uh, so it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't prohibit all eating meat or something. It's never applied to killing in war. So the pacifist argument that you, you shall not kill, it can't be made from this verse. Um, it's only once applied of capital punishment, judicial execution, and that's in kind of an unusual poetic a parallelism passage, probably not typical of the meaning of the word. Well, what does the word mean then? It's applied to premeditated murder, where you lie and wait for someone and kill him. It's applied to um, murder or, or taking a life through carelessness. Like, uh, it, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you, Daryl. Okay, um, And so what I did by the word study, I thought, okay, what that word means is what we would in English call murder, not just all killing, but murder, plus what we would call manslaughter, 
where where you just driving carelessly and you and and or or you don't put a fence around the top of your roof and someone falls off the flat roof because you've been not protecting life. So so it's kind of a range of meanings that's different from the word kill. Did that help me? Yes. Doing the word study helped me understand with more precision what was meant there. And those tools will help you again and again. Well, that's word study. Number two, the context. How does the context help you? Here's an example. Psalm 51.5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, here's the question. Is David talking about his own sin or his mother's sin? In sin did my mother conceive me. Was he saying his mother was sinful, was maybe not married or something at the time, committing adultery? I don't know. Is he talking about his mother? He's talking about himself. Well, the context really helps you because if you look at the context, you find the whole context concerns David's sin. Psalm 51.5, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Whose sin is being talked about here? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. The whole context is David confessing his own sin. David is talking about his own sinful nature, and he's so repentant that he looks back and he says from the moment he was born, he had a sinful nature, and in fact, from the moment of conception, he had a sinful nature. David is talking about himself, not his mother's sin. Does that make sense? That's the flow of the context. It fits. Well, that's how the context can help us. Um, another example, it was a little bit too much, <clears throat> I didn't quite get the verses to put up here, but Job. Job has three comforters who come to him. And sometimes people just open randomly to a passage from Job and quote Job's first three comforters, miserable comforters. And, and then later it says, they have not spoken of God rightly. So that, that context says, don't prove any doctrine from the words of Job's miserable comforters. That's a setup to say, wait a minute, that's not, that's maybe what a human being would think, but that's not God's opinion of it. So we interpret according to the context and interpret wisely. All right? <clears throat> C. Everybody has the meaning of words, the meaning of the context, and then the meaning of the whole Bible. <clears throat> Since we believe, Psalm 119, verse 160, I believe it is, the sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances endures forever. The sum of your words is truth means when you put it all together, it's consistent. It doesn't contradict itself. And we talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about inerrancy. That means that ultimately we should get an interpretation of a verse that is consistent with the meaning of the rest of the Bible. And so here's, here's a problem. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Same thing said in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ, Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here, we're justified by faith, not works. And Galatians, we're justified by faith, not by works. But then what happens when you come to James 2.24? James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Trouble. (laughs) Oh. What do we do? Now, if you're kind of, if you don't believe in the inspiration of God's word, you don't think this is divine, you just say, you don't think it's divinely inspired, you say, well, just two contradictory views. James had one view of Christianity, Paul had another view of Christianity, they're in conflict, we just leave it. And that's one view, that's kind of a liberal approach to the Bible, and say, the Bible's full of contradictions, I could give you a bunch more. Hmm, but I think even, even a secular historian looking at this would say, well, if I'm going to be honest to my sources, I expect that these books were both circulating in the first century church, and they knew that these statements were both there, and they didn't seem to have any conflict with kind of accepting them both as canon. So what's going on? And then from the standpoint of a Christian who believes that God's word is the word of God and internally consistent, I have to say, you know, I, I wonder if there's something more here that I don't understand. Um, and so I've got to probe into it and search into it. Here's where a word study would help me. What word would I want to look at? Any idea? Hmm? Faith works. Yeah, I mean, you could try different ones, but the one that's going to really hit the jackpot for you, kind of short-circuited here, is the word justified. It's the Greek word dikaiao. And that word justified, when I did a word study on it, both in the New Testament and then in the Old Testament translation into Greek, and I can't remember if I did some other literature outside the New Testament too, just to get a sense of that Greek word. What I found is it had two distinct senses. One sense was, thank you, Daryl. One sense was to be declared righteous by God. The other sense was to be shown righteous to other people. And so, we'll go to the next, and this works now. Thank you, Daryl. Um, could there be two different meanings for justify? The Greek word dikaiao. And when I did a word study on those, I found, yes, there are two different meanings for dikaiao. And in fact, what I think is happening here is Romans 3.28 We hold that one is justified, that is, declared righteous in God's sight, by faith. That's when we become Christians. We're forgiven. And God says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says you're forgiven. But James 2.24, you see that a person is justified, that is, shown to be righteous before other people, by works and not by faith alone. That is true. James says uh, if you don't have a changed life, how, how can anybody see that you have had faith? That is, uh, show me your. He said, "Oh, what is that? I'm, I'm forgetting. Show me your." <laughs> yeah, let me get the context here. I've forgotten. Hold on, hold on.
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Um, Faith apart from works is useless. And then he goes into Abraham's life many years after Abraham had been justified by faith. He goes into the story in Genesis 22 when Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar. And um, that... And in that way, you see that he was justified by works. That is, his works gave outward evidence. And so it fits the context and the meaning of the words in James. Both the sense of the words and the function of the statement in the context support the idea there are two different senses for dikaiao, shown to be righteous before other people or declared righteous in God's sight. And in that sense, the overall teaching of Scripture, which is very clear in many cases on justification by faith alone, helped us to look for another sense in James 2.24. Is that clear? Is that that helpful? And I really think that solves the problem, uh, that on the surface of it would uh, seem to be a difficulty. But it's just two different senses of the word. Okay, so, oh, where were we? We had, you have the words, meaning of words. You have meaning of the context. And you have... um, the teaching of the whole Bible, and people can bring all those kinds of arguments to bear. And then, number letter D, or four, um, some information about the background. And I want to say about this, there is a wealth of information in the ancient world, archaeological background, literary background, background from pottery and coins and all sorts, and and, uh, old manuscripts and things, And I think God has left it there for us so that it could be useful and could give us more enlightenment and help concerning um, the Bible. But I want to be cautious because there's so much being published today with background studies that it almost can give people the impression you can't understand the Bible unless you read all this. And then it threatens this doctrine we were talking about earlier about the clarity of Scripture, that God's word was written for ordinary people to be understood. So I want to say, yes, it's somewhat helpful, but but don't get carried away and think you have to know all of it before you can understand the Bible, all right? I'll give you an example. I was doing, I can't remember why, I was doing a sermon on Samson at one point, and um, I read this passage. Uh, Samson went to uh, Gaza Strip, Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place, and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up. Now, look, that's the biggest, strongest posts you could find in the whole countryside. You drive them deep into the ground, and these biggest, heaviest wooden doors you can find to keep out enemy soldiers and battering rams and everything from breaking into the city, and he just pulls them up. And he put them on his shoulders. He pulled them up bar and all and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Okay, I got a good sense of what it means. But I thought, I wonder how far that is from Gaza to Hebron. So then I looked in a Bible atlas. It's about 30 miles. Now, when I found out that he'd carried those 30 miles, that gave me a little bit more vividness to, uh, how far is it from here to where is 30 miles? I don't know. Okay. Um, 
Did that add more vividness? Yeah. Did it change your understanding of the text? No. I wondered if they were lying in wait for him, why they didn't attack him when he was out there pulling up the posts. <laughs> but I guess I wouldn't have gotten near him either if he just kind of pulled the posts up. And just <laughs> okay, so that uh, that helped. But uh, but but I want to be careful that we don't uh, be careful here. Don't let claims about some background information talk you into some interpretation contrary to the plain sex sense of the text. There are a lot of careless, unverified claims about background. Honestly, I hear these again and again. Somebody sent from a, 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 a ministry sent me a tape of some guy speaking about Jewish background to uh, the church at Ephesus, and it was just careless, undocumented, uh, speculative, and he was purporting to be an expert. And I did some research and sent it back and said, no, look, here's the data. So be careful about that. Background information can add vividness and explain customs strange in today's world, but it's seldom necessary to understand the general point of a passage correctly. So what you need is probably reliable Bible dictionary. I think International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is quite standard. Oxford Classical Dictionary I use, and there are others, and maybe we'll get some more information about those. Okay. Now, Bob said we've got to end at 9.15. Bob, where are you? I thought it was the first Sunday of the month we had to end at 9.15. Not true. We're okay to 925? I'm going to go to 925. I'm kind of pacing myself for 925, if that's all right. If somebody comes in, we need to quit, I'll just quit. Okay. Okay, now, number four. Having said all this, if you have an understanding of the text and somebody else has an understanding of the text, you should be able to give reasons for your interpretation and thereby attempt to persuade others. In a Bible study, I do not think it's very helpful for one person to say, well, I feel it means X, and another, well, I feel it means Y, well, it means Z to me, not giving any reasons. That's just kind of useless. Um, you should be able to give reasons and look at the text and say, what specific words in the text make you think it means X or Y or Z? I did that a few minutes ago with David. I said, look, it's his sin, it's his sin, it's his sin. I'm looking at specific things in the text, giving reasons to try to persuade you that this is what it means. All right? Rather than just making it uh, subjective. And I think that keeps us from error. Number five, there is only one meaning for each text, though there are many applications and though the meaning can be complex. But this principle, number five, is extremely important. There is only one meaning for each text. Jesus and the New Testament authors often argue that a text does not mean X, but does mean Y. So look at Paul. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, I didn't mean this. In other words, I meant something else. So he's arguing, I didn't mean this, I did mean this. Or Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, plural, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. He's saying, it doesn't mean this, it does mean this. There is a true and false interpretation. And Jesus, I won't go through this now, but in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he is correcting Jewish misinterpretations of Old Testament law. You've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
the, the rabbinic interpreters were adding to it and messing it up and misinterpreting, and he's correcting their misunderstandings, saying this is what it really meant. And so there is a true and a false meaning for the text of Scripture, and there is only one meaning for each text. The Westminster Confession of Faith, um, 16, 1640, 1646, I believe, 1647, something like that, um, said this, and this is in context of, um, of the results of the Reformation and Reformation thinking in England. The Westminster Confession said, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, where there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Manifold means many, many different kinds. The true and full sense of any Scripture is not manifold, but one. There is only, therefore, one meaning for each text, <clears throat> though there are many applications. Without this principle, we would have no hope of ever being able to decide what a text said. One person could say, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Somebody could say, John 1.1 1, 1 means that Jesus is God. Another could say, oh no, it means that Jesus is not God to me. And both could be right. It means this to me, and it means this to you, and it means this to a third person, and you have no control over that, and you could never know what any text of Scripture means, because, other, because people are all just claiming it means all these different things, and then saying, oh, well, we're all right. That's what I'm arguing against. It has one meaning. Now, people can differ on it. Somebody's wrong when they differ. The principle means that we can argue and debate about the right interpretation. And uh, that's how we get progress in understanding the Bible. I, I wrote a long article once about this passage in First Peter, where you know, being made alive in the, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, Christ, went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few persons, that is eight, were saved through water. What does that mean? And I wrote a 30 or 40 page article taking the individual words and tracing examples of them and arguing this word means this, it doesn't mean this. This word means this, it doesn't mean this. The context means this, it doesn't mean this. Some people were persuaded by my argument. Really insightful people. And, <laughs> and then others weren't, and then they argue back. Well, that's fine. That's, that's how we make progress. But I do think that Peter meant something by it. And, um, and we just seek to understand what that was. It wasn't that he had no idea what he was meaning, or he was writing in mysteries that could mean a whole bunch of different things. However, the meaning can be complex. I realize in poetry and things there can be um, double entendre or puns or things that have a, an earth, a kind of a, a physical meaning and a, and a spiritual meaning. There's, there can be complex meanings, but the meaning is one. It's not uh, many different things. What is the meaning for each text? One meaning for each text, though there are many applications. I, I wrote this last night, and then I'm not quite sure about it, but I think it's right. The me <laughs> yes, I am doing these last night. Um, the meaning of a text is the meaning intended by the original author. And then I put, at least that is close to what I think. I, <laughs> I, I, want, to, uh, I want to be careful that I not 
say something certainly to you that I'm not quite certain about. Um, usually, if I find out what Paul intended, that's the meaning. If I find out what Moses or Isaiah intended, that's the meaning of it. There are a couple of problems, though, with the Bible. With Scripture, there are always two authors, a human and divine. And the divine author can intend more than the human author understands. So, <clears throat> Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, that's the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the Holy Spirit was working in the prophets to give, to predict more than they understood. And you see Isaiah 53, that marvelous passage about he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and in the fulfillment, I, there's a very technical commentary on Isaiah. I was reading the other day a section of Isaiah 53, and one of the great Old Testament scholars in the world was saying, this verse in Hebrew is so puzzling that unless we had the actual knowledge of how it was fulfilled in the death of Christ, that he was intended to be buried with sinners, but he was buried instead with a rich man, unless we had the fulfillment in Christ, we, could, we would really puzzle over what it meant. But now with the fulfillment, we see, and it was so wonderfully constructed to predict with such accuracy what was going to happen. Isaiah couldn't have known that, but the Holy Spirit guided him. So there is, so there is a divine author can intend more than the human author understands, and that means that Old Testament prophecies can have immediate and distant fulfillments. I don't mind that, but I still want to say the meaning of the text is the meaning intended by the original author or authors when you have jointly authored things. I did jointly author a book one time, actually I've done it twice now. Uh, Vern Poitras and I, a friend that I've known for 30-some years, jointly authored a book called The TNIV and the Gender Neutral Bible Controversy. It was really hard because he would write a draft, I would correct it and send it back, he would correct it and send it back, I, I would correct it and send it back. It's hard to sort out now whose sentence is what. And, and so it's a dual authored book. And then, as I mentioned, my son Elliot condensed this uh, Christian beliefs book, so it's kind of jointly authored. And you take any sentence, who really intended it? Well, I suppose, ultimately, on this one, I'm the primary author. It should be what I intended. But um, that makes it a little more complex. And then there's one other thing. And I was going to talk to Steve Ullman or some other lawyers here. What happens? Well, what, do you, what happens when a student says, I really, honestly, truly, seriously intended to write true, but I wrote false? <laughs> and, I mean, sometimes it's just an excuse for, you know, it's, that's, but it could happen. Then what is the meaning? Is it what the, the, the student intended, where he said true, and it might not be as blank as, 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 as clear as true and false, but it might be just a confusion of a name or something. Is it what he intended or is it what he wrote? And I wonder if this doesn't happen in legal things sometimes, where you're quite clear what someone intended, but he wrote something else. Handwritten will or something. Hmm? I can't, if the document is clear on its face, you don't go beyond the document. So, see, I'm, I'm just wondering here, that's what caused me to hesitate. If, if the meaning of a text is clear, and even if you think the author intended something else, you stick with what it meant. I'm not so I, there's a little, a little caution there. But in general, you say what did the original author intend? All right. There's a complexity there that I need to do more work on. Hope that isn't too confusing. All right. Where are we? 
only one meaning for a text, though there are many applications. Many, Psalm 51 can apply to thousands of people in many different ways, even though it just has one meaning with regard to David in the historical context. All right, number six, coming to the end here. If you are preparing a Bible study with all the books in the world out there written on the passage you're talking about, you could do a short or a long study of any passage. Don't get discouraged by all there is to do. Example, somebody wants you to do a study on Psalm 1. You know what? <clears throat> Most of you in here, I think, especially if you've taught Sunday school class, you've led Bible studies, probably if you just had to scramble and do 10 minutes and get a Bible study ready on Psalm 1, you could probably do something. Probably. You think? I, I think you probably could. Or you could spend 20 hours on it. Or you could write a doctoral dissertation and spend three years on Psalm 1, all the background, all the words and everything. So do what you can with the time you have, and don't get frustrated um, by what you can't do. Number seven, pray, hear Carol, <laughs> that's what you said before, pray for the Holy Spirit's help in the whole process of interpretation. Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Again and again, when I pray, God gives me insight into the Bible. Not a mysterious kind of insight, but it's all of a sudden things become clear that were there and I didn't see them before. And 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural thing, person doesn't accept the things, the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we need the Holy Spirit's help in understanding rightly. Okay, any questions? Okay, e.g. If number seven shouldn't be part of number three? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I am going to have to think about that. It maybe maybe needs to be brought up there and put in earlier. It isn't something I can appeal to. This is the Holy Spirit's secret interpretation. So it's not a fact, but it's something that enables me to understand all the rest of it rightly. It's a kind of a different category. Yeah, Phil. Can we conclude here when we're saying that uh, the natural person is not able to understand that? All the people that do say the gospel of history, there's contradictions, yeah. they don't understand yeah. it. Can we conclude that they don't have the Holy Spirit guiding them, therefore it's meant to be a mystery? A lot of times. I mean, this woman I sat next to on the airplane, she got the Alumna of the Year Award from the University of Chicago Divinity School for being their most famous published graduate last year. And she didn't believe in anything. It's ah, absolutely astounding. Does she understand scripture rightly? Probably very little, to be honest. Um, it would just seem to be contradictory and full of mistakes and things. And so uh, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and enables us to understand. Jesus spoke in parables, and the people were baffled, some of them, by it. Yeah, yeah. John? Kids today describe something as good by calling it bad. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Um, and, well, no, I don't think so. There's a, there's a technical term for when you say something is good, you call it bad. It's kind of, yeah. Uh, if so, it should be noted in the dictionaries under certain words, but I don't recall any of that right now. Okay, I've got one more thing. I've got, ooh, we're at 925. Um, somebody said, why did we stop doing hymns at the end of the class? And 
sent me an email, and I appreciate that. And uh, I, basically, because I kind of didn't have them on this computer. And so let's try this. Bob, can we? Are we out of time? It's 9:25. Two minutes. Oh yes, yeah, okay. <clears throat> let's stand up and sing this. <laughs>